God-honoring effect to uh, be at Pine Bush uh, a couple of weeks ago and encounter the progeny of so many people that I have known for years. Uh, I had a chance to see uh, Josh and and, uh, Gerald Rodriguez, and I remember them as little boys. And to see them strong, mature, solid men of God really blessed me. It was really a blessing. And I have to admit, when I I saw the Clifford kids, I I couldn't believe it. I I just couldn't believe it. Um, I, 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 I looked at Trey and said, boy, God must really love your father. And I, I'm not saying, you know, part of it is to be funny, but uh, I, I've known Jane and James and John before they were married. And uh, always great guys. Never had a problem with either one of them. I always knew that they came from great parents. But to see what all the prayers and all the years of investing the word of God and their children turned out was overwhelming. It really was. It was overwhelming. Um, I know that John and Peg are not here, uh, but great stock. And I, I, I praise God for it. It's really a blessing to see what the investment in our young people is. It's, I've had a chance by God's grace, strictly by God's grace, to be, to be in more countries than I could ever name. And um, more than, more time than I can remember, saints from different parts of the world would say, pray for my son, pray for my daughter. None of our kids walk with the Lord now. Or um, Our son denounces the faith. Our daughter has married a Satanist. And you hear that, and of course you get discouraged. But then to see, uh, last night we were at the at James's house, and his see his daughters. I mean, just solid, mature young people that I, I just it just blows my mind. It's a it is a real blessing to see what God can do to a faithful man and woman. Um, I never thought that James deserved Kim. Never. But but it's, it's, it's right, right? I have never met a man who ever deserved his wife. A good man always marries up. Even in my case. Um, I, I, I don't know what... I, I told Bob this how many years ago? He must have... I won't bring it up, Bob. Um, but uh, it's it's just a a blessing to see God keep His word in family. Wow, in family, and God loves His family more than we could ever learn love our earthly family, and just. It's a blessing, thank God.
Uh, Ken did me a disservice. He mentioned the same passage of scripture that was on my mind. So I, I will have to use that. Turn your Bibles to Luke 24. Of course, with his reputation, it's no wonder that he would choose this passage of scripture. I was asked uh, two or three years ago, Tony went with me to um, speak in Georgia. A guy remembered me from 10 years before and said, I remember hearing you speak at such and such a place 10 years ago and ask you then, would you speak at this conference? And I, and what did I say? You said, yeah, if I have the time. Well, I figured I had given you enough time, 10 years. Would you come please speak at this conference? And I went, we had a great time, but um, um, the passage of scripture, I had given him the passage of scripture that I would speak on 10 years before. Oddly enough, he told me after I got there again and I already decided I was going to use that passage of scripture. So obviously God was in it. So Ken was listening to God and he knew what I was going to talk about. Um, I was I was uh, asked by a camp uh, in New Hampshire uh, several years ago to be their principal speaker for the men's conference. And um, the camp director said, we're losing our men. We're losing our men. Women have held together together the, the church of Jesus Christ at local levels for years. How do we stop the apparent staunch, or how do we staunch the apparent exodus of men from leaving the church? And I said, well, you know, Men are very, very insecure. It's not that they need a a buddy to wrap their arm around him and make him feel better. Their their walk with God has both got to make sense and it's got to be relevant and it's got to be something that they can hold on and share with other men. And we have done a bad job of that. We've kind of left that in the lurch. So um, I look at this past scripture, and I took five days. And what I'm going to give you is all five days I spoke. I'm going to try to do it in less than four hours, okay? All right. Let's pick it up. Uh, It says um, in verse 13, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus which from Jerusalem was about three score furlongs, about six, seven miles. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But the eyes were holding that they should not know him. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We pray now that you would empower us so that we might communicate effectively so that everything is said and done might glorify your name in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Somehow, communicating the, the genuine and effective daily, ever deepening 
relationship with Christ has become somewhat of a lost art. Um, I remember years ago, and, and probably Faith will remember this, the old hymn in the garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And the song kind of capsulates what happens here. here. Here are two individuals. We don't know if they're married or not. Scholars assume that they are husband and wife. Um, different speculations of who they were. It's not important. Now, are walking, taking a walk away from Jerusalem and heading toward Emmaus. And understand what, what's in their heart. Not only are they sad, they're broken. Because their reason for being, the light of their life, the breath in their soul and their spirit has been snatched away in the most despicable and shameful way known to man at that time. He was ridiculed. He was spit on. He was beaten. The Bible said he was beaten so bad we didn't have anything that we could connect to. Nothing looked at. He didn't look at a man anymore. And, and, and the leaders of that day had, had mocked him and, and, and ridiculed him and, and, and did everything they could to take away any semblance of beauty. And they walked away with that image. This was the hero of existence for them. They had only had him for a, a short period of about three and a half years. And he was gone. Shamefully gone. Killed like a chief criminal. And then someone began to start this rumor that not only was he gone, someone had taken his body. Oh, it's rumors that he rose or got away or something like that. But no, we they believed that someone had taken away his body to imaginatively desecrate him more. And the whole conversation of this trip, it wasn't by cars walking six, seven miles was what's going to happen to us? They didn't believe a body that we could visit and memorialize him. We, we don't even have a grave that we can take flowers to every day. We don't, we don't have nothing left. There's nothing to, to celebrate who he was. That in the midst of that Community of confusion and pain and heartache. Jesus does something that he wants to do with every believer. He approaches them in fellowship. He approaches them, which is not unusual for a stranger if you're on a road uh, at that time. 
to, to join up with you was safer to gro- travel in groups because highwaymen would uh, oftentimes rob people or hurt people or whatever. And Jesus comes alongside and he asked them this strange question. What is this communication you have between each other? Why are you walking? You're sad. See, the thing is, it has always been God's motif for you to explain what's actually going on in your heart. He wants to hear from you and talking with you what really is on your heart. We call it, by another term, prayer. God wants us to communicate, speak out of our soul, out of our passion, out of our perspective. What we think is actually going on. And God approaches us calmly. Not obtrusively, but calmly. And he said, just let's talk for a while. And as the song said, he walks with me and he talks with me. The whole idea is that God wants to have fellowship, not busting in with like a bolt of lightning. Not saying, hey, get yourself together. Not angrily, but he really wants to fellowship with us before he even addresses our problem. He wants us to own him as a friend and realize that his relationship is first about the well-being of the sheep. Imagine a flock of sheep and a wolf has been menacing, circling the flock. And of course, the sheep are are really scared. The the shepherd, while he has to deal with with the wolf, he also has to deal with the problem of the sheep's temperament. And how does he do that? He starts singing. He gathers them close. He lets them rub against his body. He fellowships with them. Why does he do that? Look at the next point. Jesus said unto them, what manner of communications um, of these that you have while you are uh, uh, to one another as you walk in our sad? He wants to adjust our focus. Look at the many times through the Bible. The conversation that God had with Adam after he had committed eternal high treason. He doesn't say, what did you do? Nope. He said, Adam, where are you? He didn't say, Adam, how could you do this? Nope. Adam, you fool. You've given up the whole human race. Nope. Adam, where are you? And it wasn't the problem that he didn't know where Adam was. Of course he did. But see, Adam didn't know where he was. Adam, tell me, what do you see? He wants us to give him the perspective from our vantage point. What aileth thee, Hagar? Oh, he goes, I didn't even, I woke up. Yeah, yeah, I know, Hagar. I know. What doest thou here, Elijah? No blame. No finger pointing. Let's just, let's just talk about your situation. I love, for a moment, turn to uh, Psalm chapter 109 and listen to David's Statement here. Verse uh, number one through four. And look what it says. 
Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are open against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They can pass me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. I give myself unto prayer. The worst thing in the world has happened to me now. I'm in the midst of a maelstrom. I'm getting stormed on every side. Everything that could happen to me is happening to me, but I've given myself to prayer. Did I try to fix things? No. I've given myself to prayer. Did I run to a, to a, a temporary shelter? No. I give myself to prayer. I give myself to prayer. I give God how I see things from my vantage point. I go to the only place where there's really help. When I was a little boy, I'll come in from playing, having the time of my life, dirty mess, ready for something to eat, and I would see my mother, which was her custom, on her knees in our living room, praying on the couch. And I see her crying and trembling and sweating. And I heard her cry from her heart. How she prayed for each one of us, specifically to God. And oftentimes she said, I don't know how I'm going to feed them, Lord. Lord, I, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to live tomorrow. Lord, what am I going to do, Lord? And it would seem like she had a direct dial to heaven because within a minute, within a, a moment's time, something would happen. Her very prayer was answered. And I remember so many times on my way to my room, I'd say, boy, I want to have a relationship with God like that. Somehow my mother has a direct connection to God. I want the very God my mother had. Oh, yeah, I watch Billy Graham on television. I watch uh, Jack Man Empey on television. I watch all the great minds back then and being exposed and to decent theologians. But I wanted the God of my mother. Because I knew that he heard her prayer and I wanted that relationship. And it was based on not the fact that she had all the answers. But she was screaming from her heart. Remember in, in, in Mark chapter 10, oh, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, oh have mercy on me. And then the four most wonderful words in the New Testament. And Jesus stood still. Jesus stopped everything. When one man prayed desperately from his heart, oh, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And it caught the attention of the eternal of the universe and he stood still and he stopped everything he was doing to give attention to that one heart. What's going on in your life? What do you want, son? Jesus knew what he wanted. But he wanted that man to express out of his perspective his need. Lord, I just want to see again. I just want to see again. The world had said to him, don't bother with Jesus. He's, he's an important man. He's got too many other things to do. You're nobody. 
You're just a simple beggar. But when he heard that Jesus had called for him, he threw away his beggar's cloak. Now, in that crowd, he never find it again. And it was illegal back then to be a beggar without some form that proved that the government recognized you. That cloak represented all of his, his means of living. The government had signed, this is how this guy's allowed to beg. Anything else is illegal. The woman at the well, when, she, when Jesus told her about the water springing up inside of her, the Bible says she left her watering pot. She got all the water she needed because she had handed to the Savior. He had handed to the Savior in his hand from his heart all that who he was. Jesus was able to hear his focus on his life. This is where I am. Here's my situation. Why does God even interest? Why is he even interested in adjusting my focus? Look at the next passage in Luke chapter 24. And one of them, whose name was Cleophas, verse 18, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast thou not known the things which are come there to pass in those days? And notice what Jesus does. If anybody knew what happened in Jerusalem. Two words. What things? You see, the way God is able to adjust my focus he addresses my fears tell me what you think happened I'm going to straighten out your perspective and handle the issue of your fears right now tell me what did happen and I won't read it but they went on to discuss about Jesus of Nazareth, mighty and a prophet indeed. And even their perspective of who, it, who Jesus was and what he did was all messed up. They saw him as a, a great Moses type figure, figure a, another David type figure, an Elijah type figure. He was, he was the, our generation's star quarterback. And even though they were honest in their perspective, how they saw things was based on the fears that they had. My, uh, my wife told me, uh, Dwight, you've had one stroke. You're not allowed another one. Uh, I said, what do you mean? She said, uh, I'll let you have a stroke this time, but uh, you're not going to have another one. She said, go ahead and just die, okay? I said, really, honey? She said, yeah, because it's your fault you had a stroke. I said, how is it my fault? I don't know, but it's your fault. And she quit her job and, and to take care of me, and she really was a wonderful wife. Um, every single day, she only allowed a certain amount of people to come see me. Um, she orchestrated everything that happened in my room, uh, just, just overwhelmingly. She got in touch with all the saints uh, to pray for me and that kind of thing. And she said, listen, I signed on for you to take care of me, not for me to take care of you. You promised 
that you be there. Every single day I needed you. Well, I still need you. And she said, I made a deal with God. If you act right and do what you're supposed to do, he won't give you another stroke. I said, what have I done wrong? She said, I don't want to hear it. That's between you and God. But you're not going to have another stroke. I said, I promise I won't have another stroke. Okay, so the doctor suggested I can give him a handicap sticker for his car. He can park any way he wants. Nope. No handicap sticker. Okay, no handicap sticker. Well, um, we can arrange for him to get a, a cane or a wheelchair, or a, a walker, whatever. You, nope. A cane for about four months, and that's about it. Okay. Uh, we could have home health come visit him in his house. He can get in-house rehab. He could. Nope, none of those things. He's going to do it on his own. But he's a fall risk, so what? Let him fall. Because if he falls once, he won't fall again. Oh, okay, we, all right, that's fine. Um, we can have meals delivered to uh, your house. Nope. I'm not going to cook for him anymore. If he wants to eat, he'll cook himself. You see this? This is supposed to be a wife. Where's the love? And she said, Dwight, the problem is you actually thought that life was supposed to be cushy and comfortable. That edge that you used to have of doing things the hard way and working through it and all that. You've lost that. I want you to get back on your horse and do it right. Okay. I own three horses. Really, I do. I own three horses in Tennessee. I keep them boarded at a camp. Went down there and got on a horse. Now, you're asking me why am I walking funny? Because I had a horsing accident. I walk in the house. Stephanie looks at me and says, see, it's your fault that you don't walk right. I'm selling the horses. No, don't sell the horses. I love those horses. I don't care what you love. I need a husband, not a memory. Now get this. I said all that to say this. I don't need a God that I can memorialize and put on the dashboard of my car. I don't need a nice bumper sticker. I need someone who can take the depths of my situation, regardless of what they are, and who can deal with it. Someone who can address my fears and calm my fears. Someone who knows the depths of my being and has a remedy for all those things. Someone that instantly hears me when I pray. What, what makes us different from every other faith or religion in the world? Our God is alive. He's alive. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I was um, speaking at a conference in Philadelphia, and a dear friend of mine, his name is Michael Rascala. Um, he's Egyptian. He said, Dwight, I'd like you to meet this young man. I said, sure. Uh, uh, hi, how are you doing? He said, his name is Yusef, and he's from Yemen. Hi, Yusef from Yemen. And uh, I went to give him a hug as a brotherly hug. And I went to hug him. And he said, no, please don't. Don't hug me. I said, have uh, I broken a custom? Is it, have I done something wrong? And then he pulled up his shirt. And there were hundreds of knife cuts all throughout his body. He said, 
I'm still bleeding internally. My doctor says I will never stop bleeding from some of the cuts that I received. It's only 25 years old. I said, well, what happened? He said, I am from Yemen in my village. Uh, my father was a very prominent man. And one day, about 30 Christians came by with Bibles and tracts. And before they could open their mouths to talk about Jesus Christ, the men of our village attacked them and killed them. And he threw away the Bibles and their tracts into the fire. It was a great day for our village. I was coming back from school one day, and I looked under my porch, under the stairs was, I saw something strange. An intact Bible, an intact track. And I went under, and I got it. I said, well, I'll study this thing and learn all what they were saying, and I'll refute them. So he said, I snuck it into my bedroom, and I began to read the track, and the track was very well coordinated with the Bible I had. And uh, I read the track, and I read the passage of Scripture. read the track, and I, I did this so in my room undercover with a flashlight so nobody could see me. And the more I read the track and the more I read the Bible, the more intrigued I became. And as I went through the track and went through the Bible, the more sensitive and aware of what it was saying to me. And when I got to the end of the track, it asked me in a, in a very open way, you've heard the claims of Christ. You want to accept Christ as your Savior? And I cried out for Allah to help me because it, this made sense. I had been raised in the Muslim belief all my life. And I'm reading this and it makes sense. It answered the deep thirst of my soul. And the next thing I know, I'm walking around the house sweating and crying because what I've known all my life, I have to admit it's wrong. It's a lie. And it's not because it's reason with my head. It's reason with my heart, who I am. And I turned to God and said, help me. Allah, help me. No answer. And then I turned to the God of the Bible and said, help me. If you're really there, help me. Help me to see. And he said, it was as though scales fell off my eyes. And what I read made wonderful sense. And the last thing on that track said, now don't you want to give your heart to Jesus Christ? And without hesitation and tears in my eyes, I said, yes, please come into my life. And those 30 missionaries had died so I would have this moment. And I got on my knees, locked my door, and got on my knees. And for three hours, I praised him, I prayed to him, I thanked him for saving my soul. It was like my world had become alive. God started a melody in my heart that never went away. When I got amongst my friends and my family, I, I have seven brothers and two sisters. And they said, wow, Yusef, you look different. What has happened to you? I, What's that? Uh, I, I said, what? Uh, leave me alone. 
Finally, his father said to him, we need to have a meeting, Yusuf. Something has happened to you. What's different in your life? I got my boldness together. I looked at my father, sit down. Dad, I want to tell you something that's going to accept you. Very, accept you uh, ex- upset you very much. And he said, what? He said, Father, I have uncategorically given my heart and my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I now realize that Allah and the ways of, of Hindu, uh, Muslim faith is a lie. And everything you believe and taught me was a lie. And I cling to the, my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The father got incensed, broke everything in the house, screamed and yelled. And the sons came in and he said he had said some phrase in Arabic. Which means was kill him with the cut of a thousand cuts. Each one of my brothers took their knife and started to stab and slash me. And to cut me and dig deep with their knives into my body. And I blacked out because the men of the, the village had had uh, come to see what had happened. They had forced me out in the middle of the courtyard and they threw me out. And while I lay there bleeding and all the dirt and the excrement, all I could feel was some strong man dressed in white picking me up. And no doctor in our village would touch me, so he took me to a veterinarian. And the veterinarian cleaned me up as best he could. And then he took me in his truck and drove three hours to a neutral hospital. And he said, they worked on me for 21 hours. And I'm still bleeding, like I said, I'm still bleeding. But all of these cuts on my body came from my father. When my father heard from my oldest brother that was still alive, my father killed my oldest brother. And he was about to kill my second oldest brother also and all of my brothers. When my second oldest brother said, Dad, you can kill me if you want to. That's your right. As head of this household, you can kill all of your children. But think, Father, maybe Yusuf's God really is God. He addresses my fears. All the trepidation that I used to have about my thoughts of faith and religion, my doubts, he addressed them. And how does God address our fears? Look what it says here. After this guy has spoken, we went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the woman had said, but him they saw not. The way he does it, he activates my faith. How does God activate our faith? You know. Watch. So then faith comes by hearing what? Notice what Brother Cannon mentioned. And he said unto them, O fools and slow of hearts, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and into his glory. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The way God deals with my fears, he activates my faith. How does he activate my faith? By constantly bombarding me with the word of God. 
He gives me the word. The only thing that works is the word of God. I don't need pithy statements. I don't need a a sermon fraught with illustrations. I don't want to hear about new songs that you give as a form of uh, preaching to me. I want to hear the word of God. I want to hear thus saith the Lord. And that's why Jesus spent this time sharing to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart what? Every word. Every word. Every single word. You want to survive in this faith? You want to make it through troubling times? Are you worried about political issues or not? Get in the word. Saturate yourself with the word. It was so amazing to me how the kids at the Kind Pine Bush says, Dwight, you read 17, 18 chapters a day? Yeah. Why? Why? Because my wife makes me get out of bed afterwards. I'd make it 25. I wake up between 4.30 and 5 o'clock every single day of my life, and I get in the word. I get in the word. The scripture says in Mark 135, and rising up a great while before day, he departed into a solitary place and there prayed. I have to get in the word. It's the only thing that gives me life. He uses the word and activates their faith and it builds up who they are. He doesn't talk about sad things or things of the past. He talks about the word, the living word of God. And with faith, you can move mountains. By faith, you can move mountains. The scripture goes on to say, our last point, they drew nigh to the village where they went. He made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him and said, abide with us. That's what that fellowship is all about. Abide with us. For it is toward, toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them and it came to pass. And honestly, the Bible says he never left their presence. Even though he vanished out of their sight, he never left their presence. And it came to pass, he took, sat with, at meat with them. He took bread and blessed it, break it and gave it to them. Now, this sounds spooky, but it isn't. I believe every single one of us individually not as a group, not as a family, but every one of us who seeks the Lord individually, he has a way to speak to our heart. God spoke to Mary that uniquely identified her to him by saying her name, Mary. And she had seen him before. She had talked to him before. But when he said, Mary, she turned and said, Rabona. Rabona. How was he known by these two disciples? By the way he blessed the bread, broke the bread, gave the bread. And I believe, whether you want to accept it or not, that there's a certain way God speaks to you that you know it's him. Without a shadow of doubt, that was the Lord. I'm not trying to be spooky. I mean it. 
I'm not trying to be a charismatic, acrobatic fanatic. But I believe that God has a signature tune to your heart that only you can understand. He walks with me. He talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. Somehow or another, God saves every single Christian one at a time. And when he speaks to us, he may say the same thing to a lot of us, but he tells us individually. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I believe maybe some of us will live through that day. When he raptures the church uniquely, like he doesn't speak to anybody else, he's going to call all of us in our own unique way. And I know it's his voice, the voice of my beloved. And he'll snatch me away. He'll snatch me away. And I know it's his voice. Nobody else. No matter how many trumpets I hear, only the one that plays my tune will let me know it's him. Look what the scripture says. And the eyes were open. I'm sorry, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to him. And their eyes were open and they knew him. And he vanished Did And they said, did not our hearts burn within us. You ever had that moment? Where your heart burned. That fellowship was so sweet. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us along the way, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn? college professor asked me, why do you read the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? I said, it's a very simple answer. He said, what? I read it. And because I consider myself a halfway intelligent sentient being with some modicum of intelligence, when I read the Bible, I only come to one conclusion. He's alive! He's alive! And he intimates with me. He activates my faith so he can authenticate my fulfillment. My answer is always the same. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I paid for somebody's dinner once in Florida and I was walking out hoping the waitress wouldn't tell him that I did it, but she told him anyway. And the man ran out and he said, why did you do that? I said, Jesus is the reason. I'm not a good person. Jesus is the reason. And every single restaurant in Detroit that knows me that I frequent often, I give them tips at Christmas time and on their birthday. And I give them a card. I make sure the card says in there, Jesus is the reason. And one young lady who was a rank heathen, who was an alcoholic, and I've seen her from the time that I started giving her that tip every single year. I've seen her change, giving up drinking changing the things that she did, stop going to the nightclubs, marrying a guy who had his heart kind of right, and then asking me, is this the same Jesus you believe in? I've accepted him as Savior. It took nine years, but she's in the body now. And a simple witness, Jesus is the reason. She said, thank you for telling me Jesus was the reason. Thank you, Dwight. Ladies and gentlemen, 
we walk away from this, this room every week, several times and sometimes a week. Do we walk away more Christianized? Do we walk away more holy? Or do we walk away with the smell of the Savior, the scent of his sweetness and his goodness? Can the world tell we've been with Jesus? Can the world tell? Can it? One of the things that excites me most, I've been in touch with your daughter, Brother Sousa, in California. And uh, were your medical school she in? Okay. And I wrote to her, and I said, uh, are you still walking the walk? And to hear her answer to me was really exciting. A young man I met when I was in Cabo San Lucas. He asked me, a waiter. He said, what do you do? I told him what I do. And he said, well, tell me more about us. Spent the next three or four days telling him about the Lord Jesus Christ. The last day we were there, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Not because of the messenger, but because of the message. And he got back in touch with me. He was the, um, he was going to school in Cabo San Lucas, but he was the son of the vice president of Chile. I get a phone call one day. Hello. Yeah, is this the white knight? Yeah. Well, uh, you know my brother. Well, who's, who's your brother? Elias Balgrius. Oh, yeah, I know Elias. I know him. Yeah, he told me uh, that uh, because I was coming to Detroit, I should try to get in touch with you. How's Elias doing? He's doing wonderful. He's married, he's got kids, and they're all walking with the Lord. Are you walking with the Lord? Yeah. The first thing Elias did when he came home was he shared his faith with his whole family. We all came saved. He said, I'm up here in Detroit. I'm about to marry a guy who lives up here. Okay, I met him in, in college, and we got to know each other, and I'm going to marry him. And I really thought that if I'm up here, I should get in touch with you. Okay. Met her and her mother, wonderful people. They even paid for the dinner. And uh, her, her husband said, well, listen, anybody that affected my wife the way they did and her brother the way they did, you come to me, and I'll give you a discount on the car. He owned a car dealership. And true enough, we bought a car from him. Discount was amazing. As a matter of fact, a couple months down the way, he paid for the rest of the car. We never had to pay him more for it. Really a nice friend. And um, I saw the, the work God was doing in his life. And how God had taken him from a margin, marginal Christianity to a full, red-hot-blooded Christianity. Because of one amazing reason. The authenticity of the faith. If you embrace it and hold it. And get to know the God of the universe and how much he loves you. You have no choice but to serve him. Right now, Yusuf is the greatest evangelist that Egypt has ever heard. Young people are coming to Christ because of Yusuf and those thousand cuts that he has all over his body. Right now, Elias is married and his family has moved to Detroit from South America. True, a mission field, trust me. 
and uh, he, he trained under a, a very famous evangelist, Louis Palau. And he's coming up to Detroit because he heard we needed to hear the gospel. I believe every place on earth needs to hear the gospel. But God has transformed his life. That's all we're about, people. Telling the world about the realness and the genuineness of this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what he does. These five points, he approaches us in fellowship. He adjusts our focus so we can see things as he sees things. He activates our faith. He addresses our fears. He does, does something with our, our, our focus and our, our fulfillment that only he can touch. And honestly, what happens is a victorious Christian life. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my heart so long have craved. Jesus satisfies my longing and through his blood I now am saved. Those words one soldier shared with my grandfather while they were under attack by the enemy. And my grandfather accepted Christ as his savior. And within two minutes, that soldier died, was killed. But my grandfather wrote back to my grandmother, hallelujah, I have found him. Whom my soul so long have craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. And through his blood, I now am saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of knowing you. How you address my fears and you all my issues and all my wants a part of the things that you're concerned with. Lord, I pray that I'll be the kind of witness to the world of a God who truly does meet man where he is and save him. Make me your instrument more, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.